Hello and welcome to the Yale History Podcast, a new project at the History Department at Yale University, presenting a series of interviews with historians from our department on a wide range of historical topics based on their research and expertise. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Ng, a PhD candidate at the History Department at Yale University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Terence Renault author of the book New Lefts, The Making of a Radical Tradition. Terence is a historian of modern Europe who specializes in German intellectual history, revolutions, and international social movements. He is currently a lecturer in the Humanities Program and Department of History at Yale University. At Yale, he teaches in directed studies and offers interdisciplinary seminars on European intellectual history, theories and practices of resistance, and modern revolutions. He received his PhD in history with an emphasis on critical theory from the University of California at Berkeley. Terence's work has appeared in academic journals such as Modern Intellectual History, The Historical Journal, and New German Critique, as well as popular magazines such as the Los Angeles Review of Books and Foreign Policy. His new research project concerns the visual history of capitalism in Europe and North America, as represented in cartoons, caricatures, and other images of social hierarchy around the turn of the 20th century. His new book, New Lefts, The Making of a Radical Tradition, published in 2021 by Princeton University Press, argues that a basic continuity existed between three moments in the history of the German and Western European left. Radical anti-fascism in the 1920s to 30s, left socialism in the 1940s to 50s, and anti-authoritarianism in the 1960s. In the 1960s, the radical youth of Western Europe's new lefts rebelled against the democratic welfare state and their parents' antiquated politics of reform. It was not the first time an upstart leftist movement was built on the ruins of the old. Terence demonstrates why the left in Europe underwent a series of internal revolts against the organizational forms of established parties and unions. He describes how small groups of militant youth, such as New Beginning in Germany, tried to sustain grassroots movements without reproducing the bureaucratic, hierarchical, and obsolete structures of social democracy and communism. Neo-leftist militants experimented with alternative modes of organization such as councils, assemblies, and action committees. However, Terence reveals that these same militants, decades later, often came to defend the very institutions that they had opposed in their youth. Providing vital historical perspective on the challenges confronting leftists today, this book tells the story of generations of anti-fascists, left socialists, and anti-authoritarians who tried to build radical democratic alternatives to capitalism and kindle hope in reactionary times. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about Professor Terence Renault's revisionist periodization of the emergence of the new left beyond the long 60s, but also the broader intellectual and political stakes of this history for anti-systemic and anti-capitalist mobilization today. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. So welcome Terence to the Yale History Podcast and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your important book today. Well, thank you, Calvin, for the invitation to speak with you and for that excellent introduction. So perhaps could you start us off by saying a few words about how you came to write New Lefts? You write that the book arrives at a conjuncture of the concurrence of at least four crises, the COVID-19 pandemic, anti-Black police brutality, the climate emergency, and the labor crisis in academia. Your work performs a sort of double critique, both as a work of intellectual history and an incisive political commentary, 
So how did this work grow out of your constellation of intellectual interests? And how did the idea develop? What was the research process like? That sentence about the four crises appears in the book's epilogue, which I wrote last. So obviously COVID-19 had not happened yet when I began research and writing on this project in graduate school. So the dissertation developed while I was a graduate student in history at the University of California, Berkeley. And I entered that program in 2009. And I think much of my, I guess, intellectual interests and political socialization occurred within the general context of the 2008 economic recession and academic labor politics on campus at UC. And I wanted to study intellectual history my advisor was Martin Jay, who is known as a historian of the Frankfurt School and of European intellectual history in general. And But the, the general context of what seemed to be a resurgent anti-systemic opposition or anti-capitalist consciousness, especially around 2011 and the Occupy movement and the global uprisings of that year, this all led me to slightly different subjects than were typical for Martin Jay and his students until that point, which you know typically had been the high theorists of the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, etc., or various other intellectuals whose philosophies and books are still highly regarded. I was interested more in looking at the type of theory and ideological construction that occurred closer to the ground within radical political organizations. This is something that I call low theory in the book. So um, I started doing archival research in Germany at various archives looking at anti-fascist organizations in the 1930s, both inside Germany and in exile. So I looked at police reports, I looked at personal papers, I looked at university archives, which would typically cover the later period in my research. And I became interested in lesser known intellectuals who began really as organizers or as radical political activists, and then maybe later in their careers, transformed into scholars or public intellectuals of one kind or another. So I guess methodologically, I was drawn to more engaged intellectual history, which to a certain extent was a function of my milieu. I should also say, though, one of my advisors, when I was designing this project and proposed the dissertation, asked, are you a red diaper baby? He just assumed that perhaps I came from a family with a history in the communist movement or an organized labor. But that is actually untrue. You know, I sort of grew up in a provincial petty bourgeoisie in upstate New York. And my interest in and and sympathy for radical left politics was an intellectual infinity, which only kind of gradually became something that was a little more grounded in actual organizing or politics. So that's how I came to the project and identified the New Beginning Group as a small leftist organization that formed on the fringes of the Social Democratic Party and the Communist Party in Germany. And the dissertation essentially evolved as a collective biography of this group, what its members were up to in the 1930s, 
who its members actually were, which was a difficult thing to determine with any kind of precision due to aliases and the conditions of conspiratorial work. And I wanted to trace the careers of these various members of the New Beginning group after World War II and try to determine whether there was anything like a intellectual influence, a kind of maybe a disproportionate role that this group played in the reconstruction of German social democracy or the German left in general in the 1950s and early 60s. So that provided the general framework of the dissertation. And I added some components to the book, which took a few additional years after the PhD to finish. And perhaps uh, we can talk more about that. Of course, thank you so much for that. And I think that your invocation of low theory forms one of the primary interventions of the book. It really orients our attention in intellectual historical inquiry away from what is usually regarded as a canon of high theory. The other sort of core intervention of the book, at least in my view, is your argument that there existed important ideological continuities between these three distinct movements of radical mobilization. So from anti-fascism to post-war left socialism to 60s anti-authoritarianism. And this inaugurates what you term a temporal turn in our understanding of the new left. In your words, a dialectical turn in the history of the 60s new left. Can you perhaps speak to what you mean by this temporal turn, which I view to be a key intervention in your book? And what are the intellectual stakes of taking seriously temporal consciousness as a category of intellectual historical analysis? Most basically, by temporal turn, I mean a longer historical view that we ought to adopt, particularly on the new left formations the late 1950s and 1960s, the formations that are classically known as the New Left, a label that was self-applied. And by a longer historical view, I essentially want to break away with the, the typical convention of viewing the formation of this New Left within a discrete moment or long, long decade. Sometimes people refer to the long 60s as sort of a, an era lasting from the late 1950s to the early 1970s. There's certainly excellent work done that contextualizes the global new left and then the European new left as a subsection within that long 60s decade, especially more recently within the last 10 years, there's been excellent work demonstrating the transnational connections between various new leftists in West Germany, France, Netherlands, Britain, among each other, connections across the Atlantic to U.S. new elect activists on American university campuses and in the civil rights movement, but also transnational connections between these sort of, I guess, northern or western radicals and anti-colonial resistors in the third world. So all of this scholarship I greatly admire and learned a lot from. I wanted to look diachronically, however, at some of the longer-term organizational trends that set up the particular organizational breaks that are familiar to us from the 1960s, the break from the Social Democratic Party or Communist parties in Western Europe, the attempt to create non-hierarchical, radically democratic organizations, and really the organizational break which often appeared to 60s radicals as a generational break with their elders in positions of authority within the established left organizations. This was an organizational and generational break that in fact had happened several times earlier, as I 
had learned through my research into anti-fascism and then into the kind of reconstruction of the left immediately after World War II. So part of the work transforming the dissertation into the book was developing a more robust analytical framework for making sense of this succession of neo-leftist formations or organizational breaks from the 1920s through the 1960s. And I refer to this historiographical intervention also as a dialectical turn, because I think what's significant in each of these moments is a radical attempt, which takes various forms in the countries that I examine, primarily Germany I'm looking at, but also comparative cases in France and Spain and lesser extent Britain and Italy. Each of these moments involves a sense that the existing left politics on offer, be it reformist social democracy or you know, a kind of Soviet-dependent communism, had become obsolete or had succumbed to authoritarian tendencies of one kind or another, or had simply been absorbed into the broader capitalist and imperialist system through kind of mechanisms of institutionalization and compromise. And so attempts to build a new left were always these reactions against existing formations of the old left. And the dialectical component that I observed, especially when outlining the longer trajectory of anti-fascist activists was that later on, when these activists grew into middle age and, and became themselves kind of representatives of some kind of political or, or academic authority, they started to adopt the very same arguments and ideological positions that they had po- opposed in their youth. So this was an ironic outcome in many respects. And often I came across examples in the 1960s of, say, the, the radical student generation, the 68er generation, having these confrontations, sometimes antagonistic confrontations with social Democrats who were urging caution, pragmatism, patience, working within the democratic welfare state, the conservative, kind of small C conservative politics within the system. These confrontations often pitted the present day radicals against the latter day or the, or the, the previous day's radicals. So I wanted to kind of investigate how this process occurred. I wanted to examine the exceptions to this process because there also were some middle-aged or older radicals who kind of stayed true to their anti-systemic opposition, their outsider position, let's say, their anti-establishment position. And they functioned as mentors or gurus, helping to kind of forge this radical tradition that I outline in the book, a consciousness of previous struggles dating back to, let's say, that revolutionary moment in Europe of 1918, 1919, and having various sort of punctuated moments in the decades prior to that, that all kind of lead up to the very last radical moment that I examine in any detail in the book, the 1968 uprisings. Thank you so much for that. And I think that, you know, the, the function of this idea of the new plays a very important role in, in your book. And really, your book begins, the first chapter begins with an intellectual history of different invocations of, of the new among leftist thinkers and outlines the stakes of such debates around organization and form. Central to this first chapter is the young George Lukács, who's often attributed as the pioneering figure of Western Marxism. He's keenly engaged with questions of 
institutionalization and bureaucracy in his political writings. But here you read Lukács' writings as providing a lens with which to apprehend the broader currents within the interwar left. So from the debates between Bernstein, Kautsky and Luxembourg to Lenin's own shifting treatments of political activity between what is to be done and the state and revolution. So how did Lukács' own thinking around these questions develop or shift over the course of his life? Are there broad continuities to be discerned across his works? And why did he choose to begin this book with Lukács as an intellectual figure? My first chapter on the Hungarian Marxist philosopher Georg Lukács was an addition that I made subsequently to the dissertation for the purposes of the book. I needed a first chapter that explained the history of the the Russian Revolution and its impact on the Western European left and essentially set up the anti-fascist moment of the 1920s and 30s that had been the focus of my empirical work to that point. So I wrote a more conventional intellectual history in that first chapter of Lukács' early work. I mean, you know, I, I examined his so earliest cultural essays before he became a Marxist, in which he was examining the parameters of what it would take to kind of create a new culture. And he was writing within the context of the Budapest avant-garde before World War I. And Lukács also was learning some new theories and approaches to sociology from the Germans, uh, Georg Zimmel and Max Weber at that time. And so he started to develop kind of a a radical theory of newness and culture. And it was in these early works, these early essays, and particularly the books and the theory of the novel and uh, the previous one on soul and forms, that he started examining literary genres and their limits as forms that kind of emerged historically to give expression to certain social forces or energies, but also kind of set certain limits on how these kind of cultural expressions could be articulated or, or given form. And what happens during World War I, Lukács is, somehow gets out of active military service in the Austro-Hungarian army, but he does serve as a postal censor in, a, in an office in Budapest, so doing his kind of civic duty. What happens during World War I is a sort of process of radicalization. Lukács begins reading Marx and by the end of 1918, as you know, the war is ending, he decides to join the Communist Party and takes active part in the revolution that occurs in Hungary within the general context of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. A Soviet Republic emerges in Hungary. And that was a result that was only made possible due to the decision by the Hungarian Social Democratic Party and the very new Hungarian Communist Party to, to unite on a common program and basically inaugurate a unity government. So this was a very heady moment for leftists across Europe. Of course, there were also revolutions elsewhere in Central Europe in 1918, 1919. It seemed like anything was possible. It seemed like the success of the revolution in Russia might be replicated in the you know more economically advanced countries of Western Europe, which at the end of the day was more in line with Marxism's own expectations about the sort of vanguard role of the industrial proletariat in the in the West, let's say. And Lukács, in this political context in which he's actually 
appointed a deputy commissar of culture and education in this Hungarian Soviet Republic. He applies his previous theories about art forms or literary forms to the new political forms that had emerged during the revolutions, specifically the council form or the Soviet, which was which had first kind of cropped up in 1905, but really rose to prominence in Russia and in Central Europe between 1917 and 1919. And the Soviet was a kind of institution of direct democracy composed of workers, of peasants, of soldiers who undertook kind of a direct administration of the affairs of their locality, their military units, or their kind of agricultural region. Councils or Soviets were typically organized federally. So there would be sort of a regional federation of multiple councils. And then at the at the highest level, there would be kind of a national congress of, of the Soviets of kind of that would be composed of delegates. And this was a different political form than the mass electoral party, which had really been pioneered in a major way in Germany in the decades prior to World War I in the Social Democratic Party, a party which had millions of members and, or I should say, was able to garner millions of votes, had hundreds of thousands of members. This council form was different than the Vanguard Party that Lenin had sort of designed for the purposes of revolution in Tsarist Russia. It really, the, the councils were not constructed based on a principle of kind of a vertical hierarchy or, or a discipline in quite the same way that Lenin's Vanguardist party would be structured. And of course, the, the councils were institutions of direct democracy that were composed of non-professionals, politicians, let's say. So, so there was a stark difference between this form and the institutions of, of liberal democracy or bourgeois democracy, as it was known on the left at the time. So Lukash placed great hopes in the council form, which did exist in a kind of situation of dual power in Hungary. There was the, the you know, so the councils that existed in Budapest and other metropolitan centers. And then there were the parties that were also coexisting and coalitioning in the government. And Lukash tried to sort of synthesize the party and the, and the council form in kind of a new kind of dialectical political theory. And he also thought that this political phenomenon would provide sort of the opportunity for constructing a revolutionary new culture. Uh, so because of Lukash's political role and his, in, his interests, and also because of the impact that his great book, History and Class Consciousness, published in early 1923, had on the broader European left uh, among Marxist philosophers. The, typically, this book is kind of considered one of the foundation stones of Western Marxism and would continue to be read in the decades that follow. These are all reasons that I chose Lukács as a focus for this first chapter. He also sort of, for that time in his life, really symbolized or, or embodied the kind of model of an engaged intellectual of the sort that I would examine in subsequent generations in the book, the, these type of engaged intellectuals engaged in low theory. But of course, Lukash, I think, is probably the only high theorist that I examine in, in any detail in, in the book. And I come back to his ideas a little bit in my final chapter because Rudy Duchka, one of the student leaders of the 1960s in West Germany, wrote his dissertation on Lenin and Lukash and went to visit Lukash in Budapest and sort of kind of you know reestablish one of the links in this radical tradition 
Thank you so much for that. And of course, at the core of your book is this cohort of intellectuals that you term were engaged in low theory. And really at the center of this story is the German group Neubeginnen, who's part of the anti-fascist new left. It's a, it's a group of militant youth who attempted to envision political horizons between uh, the dominant currents of liberal democracy or orthodox communism or social democracy. They maintain connections to other similar groups in France, Britain, and across Europe. They introduce novel theorizations of the nature of fascism, sexual freedom, and of ideology and consciousness. So what are some of the most consequential theoretical innovations that they introduced, and how might one assess their import to subsequent debates among among the left? Yes, so the German group New Beginning was the main empirical case study of the dissertation and remains so in in the book. It formed around 1930 in Berlin, so several years before the collapse of the Weimar Republic. And its founders were a group of disaffected communists, renegade communists, who at that time opposed the German communist and kind of the official Comintern-sponsored policy of the so-called third period, the period of the social fascism thesis. And this was a time when communists were fighting kind of vehemently against social democrats as kind of opportunist sellouts whose kind of politics of compromise, in fact, enabled actual fascists to grow in power. And now this was sort of the part of the, the interpretation that the communists had of fascism at the time, but really it prevented any kind of productive collaboration between the parties of the left. So the the group that formed that eventually would form New Beginning, it, it first called itself the Leninist organization. They believed that the social fascism thesis was only, you know, when put into practice, was only an agent of fragmentation and disunity on the left. It was counterproductive. So some of them had been expelled from the Communist Party for opposing this line. Others clandestinely retained their membership while also being active in this new Leninist organization, which essentially went back to the works of Lenin, especially the 1902 text, What is to be Done, and uh, wanted to basically turn Lenin's older theories, his ideology critique and his organizational strategy back against the existing communists in an attempt to infiltrate the Communist Party of that time, and also the Social Democratic Party of that time, and through the middle tiers, the middle tier functionary level, guide those two parties' policies toward a unity program, which they, which the New Beginning crowd thought was the only way to combat the rising threat of fascism. Now, in 1933 in Germany, New Beginning's long-term strategy of like gradually turning the two workers' parties toward unity was abruptly kind of short-circuited because the Nazis seized power and immediately set upon persecuting the the communists and the social democrats. So that long-term strategy became impossible in the current conditions of the anti-fascist struggle. So New Beginning then turned its attentions toward collecting information on all aspects of Nazi society and the economy, writing up reports that it would smuggle across the border, you know, had various border contexts, especially at the Czechoslovak border, the, the Belgian border and the French border. 
And these reports over the course of the, the mid-1930s would be published abroad as sort of reports on the situation inside Germany. And New Beginning, which never comprised more than a couple of hundred members and then maybe a penumbra of a thousand, maybe a couple thousand sympathizers, uh, New Beginning tried to construct a counter-narrative to oppose the propaganda of the Nazi regime. And its reports were widely read, but not only by, you know, by journalists abroad, foreign journalists, but also by leaders of the various socialist parties, labor parties in the West, and sometimes by heads of state. And they had certain uh, certain authority that rivaled even the similar reports that were being issued by the German Social Democratic Party in exile. So there was sort of a fight for legitimacy of like, who who is, who is the um, authentic spokesperson of the radical German workers movement whose overt organizations have been forced underground by the Nazi regime. And New Beginning for a short time was regarded as a representative of the of the youth as having one of the most elaborate underground organizations in Germany that kind of it was kind of a, a web that extended between multiple cities, was able to facilitate pretty good communications across the border and kind of gave a window into what was really going on inside Germany. And this status as sort of a new left that kind of had arisen in the context of repression of the old left created you know, rivalries in exile. And so in the book, I examine the kind of the peregrinations of exile politics, the, which often involve, you know, petty personal disputes, the, you know, what Freud called the narcissism of small differences, the, you know, sort of the fierce battles over small disagreements that could occur within the really hard conditions of emigre political work. It's hard to be a refugee anyway, but often these host countries uh, and, you know, New Beginning was operating in Prague and Paris, London, and even New York toward the late 1930s. These host countries would subject political emigres to surveillance. There would be censorship in some cases. Uh, in Switzerland, you know, there would be sort of a ban on any kind of any kind of employment or or publication by emigres. So there was widespread use of aliases and covers. And, and part of my empirical work was reconstructing this transnational network. And so what I kind of determined was over the course of the 1930s, New Beginning its status in exile grew in sort of an indirect relationship to its its diminishing underground capabilities inside Germany as it was subject to a couple waves of arrests and as sort of the the abilities of the Gestapo to root out dissent improved over the course of the decade. And so New Beginning in Exile became a spokesperson for the sort of imagined new left that would sort of be part of an anti-fascist revolution in Germany should circumstances be right. And, you know, part of the debates that occurred over the course of the 1930s and then once the war began in 39 was, um, you know, was a military defeat of Nazi Germany the precondition for this kind of democratic or socialist revolution that supposedly would take place once the Nazi regime was sort of knocked out of power or was the revolution itself the thing that you know would be the homegrown cause of the nazis being deposed from power uh there there sort of was a gradual pessimism that about that possibility grew over the course of the years and eventually new beginning kind of resigned itself to the need for military defeat and especially in britain and 
the United States, some New Beginning members became active collaborators in the Allied war effort as the 1940s went on. So it was a strange journey for revolutionary socialists who certainly believed that Britain and the United States were the kind of headquarters of global capital. A strange journey for these individuals to eventually aid in the war effort with this sort of strategy that Nazis, you know, Nazi Germany must militarily defeated before any kind of democratic revolution could be carried out there. That's really interesting because another thing that really strikes me about this interwar moment as well is that this is a moment of profound internationalism. And one thing that you really sort of like underscore is that there were several organizational experiments that were also undertaken by neo-leftist groups in London, Paris, Barcelona, Prague. And here you mentioned a really sort of important example of the Spanish Workers' Party of Marxist Unification or the Partido Obrero de Unificación Marxista. Here, I, I, I would just perhaps like to invite you to speak a bit about why you chose to focus on the context of the Spanish left or what you term the Spanish experiment in your analysis of broader debates around radical democracy. And how did the European anti-fascist new left take up the question of colonialism, which, you know, at this same point in time was also informing comments and debates around the colonial and national questions? That's an excellent question. So as I've said, the New Beginning group, this German group, was the red thread whose various strands I kept pulling on as I put together this project. And one of those strands took me to Spain and the Spanish Civil War, because New Beginning was active in recruiting uh, German volunteers to fight for the Republican side in Spain. And several of New Beginning's leaders in exile cultivated relationships with Spanish Socialist Party and with more radical, what, what I would kind of view as new left organizations in Spain, most famously this, as you mentioned, this party of Marxist unification, PUM, which has been made famous by George Orwell in his book, Homage to Catalonia. Poom was, you know, the the kind of aegis for the militia that Orwell accidentally joined when he arrived in Barcelona in 1936. He claims that it was accidental that he joined this group. So I decided to flesh out the context of this Spanish struggle because over the course of the 1930s, of course, you know, anti-fascism was an international affair. And the Spanish Civil War was widely viewed as a proxy war between Franco's nationalists who were supported by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy on the one side and the kind of the legitimate government, the Republican government, which was supported by the Soviet Union on the other side. So what the Spanish Civil War was kind of viewed also as a prelude to an inevitable outbreak of a second world war. Unlike the first world war, which nobody saw coming, you know, as the, as the cliche goes, the second world war was sort of ongoing at various places around the world in, you know, East Asia and in Spain before, you know, classically broke out in a formal sense in 1939, everyone knew it was coming and it was already there. So what fascinated me about Poom and these other neo-leftist experiments in Spain was their attempt to build these radically democratic militias and kind of non-party cells uh, that sort of resisted the classic organization of a socialist or communist party. They looked more like the Soviets or the councils that I described earlier. 
the militias, which were engaged in armed struggle against the uh, Franco's nationalists and their fascist supporters, they dispensed with kind of a formal officer hierarchy. Everyone called themselves comrade. There was a remarkable gender equality at the front, women fighting alongside men. There was kind of an attempt, you know, and Orwell describes this quite vividly in his book, there was an attempt to sort of prefigure or bring into being in advance the kind of a socialist utopia that these people were fighting for uh, within their own organization, even at the front in the direst of circumstances. Poom also, you know, was subject to the typical kind of internecine struggles and repressive, repressive campaigns that many new lefts have been subject to. There's sort of this episode I recount in the book of the so-called May Days in Barcelona in 1937, in which the you know regional Catalan Nationalist Party, together with the Communist Party, declares war more or less on Pum and the anarchists. And there's street fighting in Barcelona among these these other these people on the left who are otherwise anti-fascists. So there's this war within the war, a civil war within the civil war that's occurring, and you know the leaders of Pum are you know, executed or imprisoned. And New Beginning was kind of involved in this whole process. One of its members, Mark Rhine, was sort of disappeared from Madrid in 1937. And there was a strong suspicion, and this has since been kind of empirically proven by other researchers, that Rhine was assassinated by communist agents as part of kind of an effort to purge the the Spanish left and some of the foreign volunteers that were there, including Rhine all kind of you know, non-communist elements. So it was the experience in Spain, in fact, that first caused New Beginning to reevaluate its relationship to Soviet communism. It always sort of had been keeping the communists at arm's reach. But but really, by the end of the, the Civil War in 1939, New Beginning had come to the conclusion that the Soviet Union, which through the, common, the Communist International exerted a pretty firm control over communist parties elsewhere in the world. The Soviet Union had essentially turned into an imperialist power who was pursuing geopolitical interests that were contrary to the interests of an international workers' movement or international socialist revolution. So the Soviet Union had become an obstacle to revolution. And New Beginning kind of came to this realization earlier than some other leftist currents for example, in France, this is sort of a, a typical disillusionment with Soviet communism that occurred in the late 1940s, for example. So uh, in many respects, German, the German left and German Marxists were always sort of ahead of the developments in other countries, theoretically and politically. And this is another example. Thank you so much for that, because really, once we sort of entered the war years, we witnessed this sort of new leftist split across the board with Soviet communism, which occurred in the late 1930s. And of course, this was of, in, this was of immense consequence for the scope of anti-fascist action more, more generally as well. But once we enter the post-World War II moment, we sort of see the, the consequences and legacies of that split with Soviet, this idea of Soviet communism. It's really interesting because here you trace a few distinct trajectories that occurs within the European left more broadly. In German left politics, you argue that it came to be divided into two camps of, on one hand, 
East-oriented fusionists and on the other hand, West-oriented social democrats. In the context of 1950s West Germany, for instance, many former neo-leftists came to be aligned with the democratic establishment. So here you provide the example of Fritz Erler, who's a former communist who turned into an SPD official, and Richard Leventhal, who is a former theorist of New Beginning, who, who, who became an anti-communist liberal, essentially. And in contrast, you find that in post-liberation France, you saw the emergence of the French Communist Party and the socialist French section of the Workers' International. You find smaller groups like Sartre and Rousset's Revolutionary Democratic Assembly. You find journals such as Casuriadis and Lefaux's Socialism or Barbarism. And you really uh, you attribute this uh, divergence to the failure of the German left to take seriously questions of internal democracy and organizational form. So here, perhaps I want to ask you to speak a bit more about these two contrasting trajectories and how might one then think about the relationship between conceptualism and critique or in other words to what extent is a project of critique undertaken under very different conditions in Germany and France conditioned by the sort of punctuality of historical context well to paraphrase Sartre the task of critique must be grounded in one situation so the historical situations of France after liberation in 1944 and Germany after the collapse of the Nazi regime in 1945 were vastly different. Both countries, of course, were economically and materially devastated. So there was a basic task of reconstruction that had to occur. But France had thrown off a foreign occupier, had overthrown a collaborationist Vichy regime in the south of France. And the French Communist Party in particular had played a crucial role in the anti-fascist resistance in that country. And it emerged after the war with a great deal of, of legitimacy, entered the government for the first time alongside the, uh, the socialists and another party. The situation in Germany was such that there were at first three and then four different occupying militaries in the various regions of Germany. And there were four occupied sectors eventually in the city of Berlin. Political activity was forbidden as part of the occupation, you know, at least through the summer and fall of 1945. It was forbidden, I should say, in the three Western zones, the British, American, and French zones. The, the, the situation in the Soviet zone of occupation and in the Soviet sector of Berlin was different. And maybe this is counterintuitive, but the Soviets were the first one to allow for Germans to form political parties again and to publish their own newspapers in the political press again, to form their own unions again. They did so several months before this was the case in the Western sectors. And you might ask, well, that doesn't fit the sort of model of a, let's say, authoritarian communist occupation. But the strategy was to actually Kind of, this was part of the general strategy in the Soviet bloc in Eastern Europe. It was to first create conditions for popular democracy or bourgeois democracy. Then the Soviets would cultivate, through elections, would cultivate an anti-fascist bloc of parties, which would then form kind of the nucleus of a sort of a, the eventual formation of a party state of some kind. This is their strategy for building power. The, a reason why this was such an important strategy in occupied Germany from the communist perspective was that organized communism in Germany had been completely destroyed. There was effectively no 
Communist Party operating in Germany in 1945. It had been first forced underground, members have been killed, or had gone into exile in Moscow, and then sort of were flown back into into Germany after the Red Army was victorious. But they were you know, these communist leaders returning from exile had to rebuild cadres from scratch, essentially. Um, and often there was, you know, when when these communist leaders and these emigres encountered their former communist comrades, let's say, who were liberated from the concentration camps or who were, you know, POWs or otherwise rediscovered. There was a difference of experience and sometimes a difference of political opinion that had developed over the years between these communists who remained in Germany and those who had gone abroad and sort of had continuously recalibrated their politics along with the Soviet line. The ones that remain in Germany were much more open to collaborating with other leftists in building like grassroots anti-fascist action committees and sort of new lefts from below. And these they were more invested in abandoning some of the rigid ideological positions that they had held previously. This was seen as a threat to the returning communist emigres. So part of the reason that the Soviets, as part of their occupation policy enabled the formation of political parties and the press. It was to kind of buy time for the Communist Party to reestablish itself and slowly build hegemony again. And so uh, one of those complicated episodes I recount in the book was this struggle over 1945 into 1946 within East Berlin in particular, but generally within Berlin, to uh, reconstitute the old social democratic and communist parties, and then to build a new socialist unity party. And at first, this seemed to be a great hope for reuniting the historically divided and tragically divided German workers movement. But quickly, it became clear that the Soviets were manipulating the process in such a way as to make the social, this kind of planned socialist unity party a tool of kind of communist policy that wouldn't really represent the interests of the broader German working classes. There was also a sort of a rivalry between the socialists in the East and socialists in the, in the West, like Kurt Schumacher, who wanted to reconstruct the Social Democratic Party kind of according to its Weimar constitution. And so I try to reconstruct in a lot more detailed on the ground way how this process played out in occupied Germany and New Beginning, its former members who had remained in Germany and who now have reestablished communications with its various comrades who had gone into exile, they played a very active and crucial role. I argue kind of the crucial role in preventing the, the kind of the, fu- the, the complete fusion of the social democratic and communist parties in the Western sectors of Berlin and preserving kind of the relative autonomy of a social democratic politics there. So a new left that had originally aimed for, you know, German working class unity, its politics change in that really fast paced and kind of materially and existentially difficult time in post-war Germany. Its politics had changed in kind of this overdetermined separation into two kind of emerging geopolitical orientations. On the one side, there's kind of the West-oriented or the U.S.-oriented social democratic camp. And then on the other side, there's the Soviet-oriented communist camp. And 
in a way that polarization became so overdetermined in occupied Germany that a, a kind of new left became impossible. There was sort of a political no man's land that a new left would have to try to occupy, but organizationally it became impossible to do so. You had to sort of commit to one side or the other. So this also was not the case in France. It was not the case in Italy, where there was not such a strong overdetermination of, let's say, a US-oriented socialist side and a communist or Soviet-oriented communist side. There was a great degree of freedom in between the camps for a non-aligned socialist, democratic socialist possibility. Uh, and, and that's where this French group, the Revolutionary Democratic Assembly, comes into play. Some former Trotskyists, along with Sartre and some others, try to kind of create this umbrella group um, that would not, you know, that, that sort of organizationally would be internally democratic and would not sort of commit to the old positions of the, you know, the former Socialist Party and the, or the Communist Party. And there also was sort of a, a push in these other countries for a socialist Europe, a non-aligned federation of socialist movements, hopefully achieving some kind of governmental power in Europe that would not not be sucked into this emerging Cold War rivalry that was developing in the late 40s. This project failed, of course, but there was a slightly longer period of let's say, new left potential in in France and, and Italy than in, in occupied Germany. Thank you so much for that, because I think that that leads us quite nicely into our next question, which really addresses the moment of the 50s and 60s, where there's much more of a convergence between these different currents of renewed left socialism in France and in Germany. So here, the broad context here that you sketch out is one that's really occupied by different moments of left resistance from the British Marxists of the New Left Review, to the anti-imperialist New Left in France, to left socialists in West Germany, such as Abendro and Flechtheim. And you argue that they represented a really important response to the authoritarian restoration of capitalism and an attempt to imagine an autonomous left politics in the context of the 50s. On the other hand, you also sort of sketch out how the former writings of Lukács, of Gramsci, of Reich, came to be rediscovered by theorists such as Rudy Dushke and Daniel Kuhn-Bendy, and here, I would just like to invite you to talk a bit about the historical conjuncture out of which these concurrent left socialisms emerge. And to what extent were these developments influenced or conditioned by things like the civil rights movement in the US, the struggles for decolonization in the third world, as well as developments in this idea of like Maoism that were occasioned by the Chinese Cultural Revolution? The left socialists of the 1950s and early 1960s, as I call them, I interpret as a bridge generation, bridging the experience and kind of theoretical orientations of radical anti-fascism with the emergent anti-authoritarian new left of the mid to late 1960s. I wish that I could, I could have spent more time in the book talking about the British Marxists of the New Left Review that sort of ended up on the cutting room floor. I also mentioned a variety of anti-imperialist new leftists in France that opposed the socialist policy on Algeria and, you know, started building networks of anti-colonial solidarity. These are comparative cases that I introduce in the book to suggest that there were broader Western European patterns. But my focus really is West Germany. And the main phenomenon that 
characterized the German left in the 1950s was a slow process of what I call social democratic modernization. The adoption among social democrats of a self-consciously modern attitude toward politics and modern in that time meant kind of U.S. electoral campaign strategy. Modern also meant considering the interests of a broader section of the population. So not solely the working class, but considering what it would mean to build a popular party that also integrated the interests of middle-class voters. There were some currents within German social democracy that also subscribed to one form or another of the end of ideology thesis that had been popularized by some Western sociologists such as Daniel Bell and Raymond Aron. And the end of ideology thesis are sort of predicated on the idea that within the context of a sort of reconstructed democratic capitalism in the West, which slowly but surely was bringing material prosperity, was causing kind of real growth in Western economies, was sort of contributing to what the historian Eric Hobsbawm would later call the golden age of democratic capitalism, you know, from the late 1940s through the early 1970s. This sort of general context really rendered the older ideological contestation that had characterized the 1930s obsolete. And it seemed to be the case that organized labor through partnerships with employers and arbitration by the state could achieve real gains for the working class through negotiation and generally economic decisions within the context of a welfare state could be administered by technocratic elites of one kind or another. So this idea of the end of ideology sort of was an anti-totalitarian position that essentially meant making one's peace with democratic capitalism and redefining social democracy as sort of a politics of the possible within that context and basically just an expansion of welfare provisions rather than any kind of direct confrontation with capital or any kind of you know engagement in class struggle. So this is sort of a revival of the older social democratic reformisms around the turn of the 20th century when there was, that was another moment of sort of skepticism about Marxism as a theoretic orientation and skepticism of class struggle as a sort of a political strategy. So in the 1950s, left socialists expressed their own skepticism of this, what seemed to be a new consensus that was forming on the West German left around this sort of modern or modernization politics. And this all came to a head in 1959 at the the special congress of the Social Democratic Party at Bad Godesberg, the small town near Bonn along the River Rhine, at which the party agreed upon a new program, a new sort of guiding set of principles that would not only kind of express the values of the party, but would kind of provide a blueprint for electoral campaigns at the national level, or or rather at the federal level, and then at the various land or regional levels. And this program basically involved a purge of the Marxists from the party. One of the left socialists that I look at, Wolfgang Abendroth, was on the program commission that was tasked with writing this new party program. And he remained on this commission, but he was increasingly vocal in his opposition. 
he tried to mobilize sort of a cohort of left socialists at the party Congress to vote down provisions, was very much defeated in this endeavor. And the result, the Gotesburg program included no more language of kind of class contestation. It was all about like these ethical values of freedom and solidarity and kind of cross-class unity and compromise. It really had been watered down to the point where the SPD was hardly distinguishable from the Christian Democratic Union, which had really been stomping the SPD in almost every election to that point. So Avent wrote and his comrade Asad Flecktheim and a number of other left socialists thought that the SPD was really shooting itself in the foot. It was abandoning the working class. It was abandoning class politics in general. It was accommodating itself to this sort of bourgeois democracy within the context of a capitalist economy. And it thought that it would pay the price in subsequent elections. Now, this particular expectation was proven false. The SPD started to gain votes in elections that followed in 1966, in fact, entered a governing coalition for the first time with the Christian Democrats, the so-called Great Coalition, Grand Coalition. And then in 1969, the SPD became the majority party in government, governing with with the, the Free Democrats. And they had the first social democratic chancellor since the 1920s, 1929, I think, in, in Willy Brandt, who himself, it should be noted, was a former radical anti-fascist who belonged to this Socialist Workers Party in the 1930s, uh, but by 1969 had become sort of a Kennedy-esque representative of, well, I don't want to be too anachronistic, but of a kind of centrist, center-left politics at that time, a politics of sort of, of, of moderation and responsibility. So these left socialists then banded with the only remaining, what they viewed, the only remaining kind of area of anti-systemic opposition, at least at an intellectual level. And this, this were the radical students who in the German Socialist Student League were organized you know, as an arm of the, of the Social Democratic Party and still were Marxists for the most part. So the, the Abendroth-Flechtheim and the older left socialists tried to cultivate this Marxist oppositional mentality among the radical students in 1960 or so. But as part of its broader purge of the left, the Social Democratic Party decided to expel the SDS from the party or, or basically forced its members to decide whether they would remain Social Democrats or continue belonging to this Socialist German Student League. There was also a rival student, like a university organization that was formed by people loyal to the party. So there was a real organizational split. And when that occurred, and it was consummated in 1961, suddenly left socialists who themselves were expelled or resigned from the party in this conflict, and radical students, including Rudy Duchka and some others, found themselves without a party. The Communist Party had already been banned in 1956 as part of this sort of, uh, you know, uh, communist verbot in West Germany. So there was no party for the radical left. And so this was this created the sort of political conditions for the formation of a new left and sort of the extra parliamentary opposition in the mid-1960s into the late 1960s. So that's the story I tell in the final two chapters of the of the book. And again, introduce, you know, I introduce comparative cases in, uh, in France in particular with the development of this new left in organizational terms. In theoretical terms, 
and this answers the other part of your question, part of this reorganization of now politically homeless leftists of the younger and the kind of middle-aged generations was a kind of rediscovery of the Western Marxist theories and radical organizational programs of the interwar years. And in West Germany, this is especially important because the Nazis had embarked upon a wholesale censorship and destruction of left-wing literature. So it was the case that there simply were not any longer books and pamphlets and brochures from the earlier period that were available for interested or curious leftists to read. The only kind of leftist literature that was on offer in West Germany was in one way or another, you know, let's say sponsored by the Social Democratic Party and its publishing houses, or you know, in the East was you know, communist funded or inspired. A lot of the, the social democratic stuff was also funded by U.S. front organizations like the Congress for, Cult- for Cultural Freedom. So it was a fraught kind of cultural space. And so, you know, people like Rudy Duchka, Dieter Kultzmann, and some others, they travel outside of West Germany to Amsterdam, to London, to New York, and sort of raided the used bookstores in Amsterdam. They went to the, the International Institute of Social History just to get their hands on radical literature from the interwar period, from this radical anti-fascist period, but also like works by Lukash that had been destroyed or, or, or censored in Germany in, in the intervening years. They, they brought back this literature into West Germany and copied it, often published kind of you know, quasi-legal or, or illegal versions of these tracks you know, assuming they were still under copyright in some form or another, and re- kind of reconstructed in a very painstaking way a bibliography of past leftist imagination, of theory, and of organizational forms. And this served as sort of a, a reservoir of organizational forms of inspiration for the radical leftists of the 1960s. And this was, of course, not the only source of inspiration and we haven't talked you know quite enough yet about the the international context the inspiration that the anti-colonial struggles around the world had for western european leftists but that rediscovery of a of a kind of a radical tradition within europe was a crucial component of the development of the new left consciousness of the of late 1960s of course, and in some ways, one might view your book as performing a similar kind of conceptual labor by going back to these histories from, from the 50s and 60s and, and earlier. So perhaps as a final question, in your view, how does this history shape the possibility of political critique in our present conjuncture? So as you know, you know, throughout the 1980s and 90s, there were various forms of left populism that came to be articulated theoretically as uh, post-Marxism. And in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, this sort of strand of autonomous Marxism, most closely associated with Hart and Negri, came to assume a certain theoretical currency as well. The problem space that we inhabit in our present moment from the vantage point of 2022 with radical movements here and elsewhere, including Black Lives Matter, as well as ongoing anti-authoritarian protests uh, worldwide, and the decades-long Palestinian liberation movement against the Israeli occupation, and climate marches demanding radical action, how do we then move beyond the strategies and tactics of new left's uh, past? That's a wonderful question. And any historian will be on shaky ground when asked to comment on contemporary political tendencies, especially 
in my case, when the substantive history that I tell essentially ends in 1968. And, you know, I only gesture at ways in which that history can be brought up to the present in my epilogue. But I'll try. The varieties of post-Marxism since the 1980s, which involved sort of, you know, redefining uh, leftist politics beyond the working class and attempt to kind of um, experiment with modes of left populism. Varieties of, as, as you mentioned, the alter globalization of the, of the 90s and its revival, I think, in the 2011 uprisings, you know, these occupations of symbolic sites of finance and trade, horizontalist movements, spontaneous assemblies, all these were sort of pioneered in one way or another by, you know, Seattle in 1999 and um, that sort of prior moment of alter-globalist politics. I think that in one way, left contestation since, you know, over the last few decades has always sort of been in search of new organizational forms in a general context in which the classic organizations of the left, political organizations like Socialist Party or Communist Party, and then you know labor organizations have been drastically reduced or decimated and destroyed in some cases. So one thing that I like to point out when asked, you know, what is the political takeaway of my book or how ought we approach the history of New Left's past when thinking about the uh, reformulation of a new left for the present. I like to, to kind of note that the context in which historical new lefts from the 1960s back to the 20s formed is completely different than the political context now, uh, because we are at a point of low labor density, uh, labor union density, low kind of labor contestation, strike activity and stuff, despite, you know, recent kind of upticks in Striketober and whatnot. And uh, we're in the situation of uh, party politics in which we've totally lost the mass parties of the past who, you know, for which membership meant anything in particular. You know, I'm thinking of the political scientist Peter Mayer's argument that there's been a hollowing out of Western democracy, the Western political system, you know, since the 1980s, so that political parties, even though they might call themselves labor or socialist, are operating more or less as campaign vehicles in the circulation of political elites trying to curry votes in the next election, but have really alienated the uh, any kind of base or rank and file from, you know, the, the decisions that are made at some kind of administrative leadership level. So that's all to say that if a new left is thinking about forming today, and I do think that there have been really inspiring social movements and uprisings that through which a new left may form, and that might be the Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S. and, and kind of globally start in 2020, sort of the second wave of BLM. Certainly could be the climate justice movement and the variety of forms that it takes, whether that's Extinction Rebellion or Fridays for Future, you know, the or, you know, more forms of direct action against uh, you know, in property destruction, against pipelines or blockades, etc. All these sort of elements of early 21st century anti-capitalist action, even sublimated through different forms or redirected through other forms like targeting institutions of police brutality, which again, I think is a form of anti-capitalist resistance, even if it may not always understand itself as such. They provide, these instances provide material, I think, for a potential new left. 
that's in search of organizational form. But lacking the institutions of an old left in any meaningful way, and this is especially the case in US, uh, but also you know the case in, in Western Europe, I'm cautious about recommending any kind of imitation of the organizational forms adopted by the historical new left that I look at. You know, these radically democratic, spontaneous, non-hierarchical forms, which always were facing the challenge of sustaining their radically democratic form over time. I'm cautious because it would seem that a precondition for the proliferation of such neo-leftist small groups is the existence of something like a mass party or of unions that can carry on a more sustained struggle for power and that might shift the institutional terrain or the political terrain in some lasting way. So I agree with the with the scholar Rodrigo Nunes that uh, who's written this brilliant book recently called Neither Horizontal Nor Vertical or, or maybe it's neither vertical nor horizontal which basically claims that the left should not fetishize any particular organizational form and you know historically and now the best strategy for the left is to cultivate a diverse ecosystem of organizational forms so kind of effort on all fronts and for the left now that means like pursuing some kind of party political organization in the US context it's complicated because it's very difficult to operate outside of the democratic party there are laws in place that makes it difficult to run party candidates of a different sort but this is slightly more possible in the european context which have a multi-party system but also the left ought to cultivate non-party forms and in my own history i found that the greater the sort of diversity of the, of the left ecosystem of organizations, the more resilient the left can be in moments of crisis and repression and defeat. Often it is the small groups, the radical small groups that can provide the catalyst for the rebuilding of some kind of movement and can kind of weather the tough times. The final thing I'll say, though, in the context of looming climate catastrophe, the timeline for left contestation for, let's say, an eco-socialist or left climate contestation is rapidly narrowing or dwindling. And that causes a real crisis, I think, for the organizational strategy of the left. I think there are great historical precedents for medium or longer term strategies for building counter hegemonic institutions, for example, for working through the institutions. But there are a, there's a relative paucity of strategies for effective short term action that d- doesn't simply have a you know, sort of a backlash against it that would result in political isolation for the left. But the climate situation demands rapid action. There is just simply a narrowing window of opportunity in which to slash carbon emissions. So I think people who are imagining alternatives, and this could be like in a speculative fiction sense, like the author Kim Stanley Robinson has done in his book, Ministry for the Future, all of these speculative scenarios about like, well, what could be done to avoid the worst form of climate catastrophe? They face this organizational dilemma of like, what can be accomplished within the, within the short term? Because we have very little time left. And that's really a question that my book can't answer. But perhaps there are some uh, resources in the book for working through some of the organizational possibilities that historically have been tried in different circumstances and maybe revived now or, or maybe kind of learned from in the present day context. 
And I think that's certainly a very optimistic note to end on. So thank you so much, Terence, for joining us today again. Thank you. And thank you, listener, for listening to today's episode in which we discuss New Left's The Making of a Radical Tradition by Professor Terence Renault, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. You can find the book on bookshop.org, your local independent bookstore, and other outlets. This is your host, Kelvin Ng. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Yale History Podcast. Thank you.